Hello, everyone. This is Jared Director, President of Columbia Omnicorp and Columbia Omni Studio. Welcome to Columbia Omni Live. This is where we will bring you the latest insider look into the fashion and color industry while we all reimagine this new world we live in. Enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes. Also, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see what creative projects we are helping our customers with. Thank you very much and stay safe. We are live. Okay. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, this edition of uh, Columbia Omni Studios uh, interview series, where we interview some of the um, industry experts um, in our field. And today we're going to talk to uh, Julia Musi, who is uh, the Vice President of Business Development at uh, DSL. Um, I've known Julian for a number of years and uh, have a high regard for him and high regard for his, his knowledge, uh, especially about color. And I think that's the thing that he likes the best. So, um, hi, Julian. Hey, Mitch. <laughs> um, one thing that I've asked a few of the other uh, interviewees, and I think that it's, it's very telling, is uh, to talk about your career path, to talk about uh, how you started, um, I know that you didn't start in the textile business, uh, but you're you're stuck in it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just just curious, and I think the audience will get a lot out of uh, hearing about your uh, career path. Yeah, sure. I, I it's it's funny. One of those. I, I feel like I'm, I'm like a lot of people in, in this industry, where it's like I I found myself in color, um, you know, rather than kind of in, intending to be here, but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, go, going back into like uh, high school, I, I was always kind of I was kind of torn between like you know this this love of, of techie things and uh, you know a little bit more uh, artsy stuff, uh, photography and, and film, and you know especially in the early nineties, um, the, the you know tech was not as as cool as it is now. Um, so I think that when I went to college, I kind of rebelled against that and, and uh, went to school for, uh, I think it was uh, film and sociology. Uh, so I was, you know, uh, yeah, ge- ge- gearing up for the, uh, you know, real lucrative career path. Um, and, you know, then after school, um, uh, started working as a photographer, did a little commercial uh, photography and um, and that kind of got me into the, <clears throat> the the color world a little bit because you know it was kind of uh, you know transitioning from analog to digital so we were doing a lot of uh, film scanning and so the the color workflow uh, part of that was really important and uh, you know I remember it just being you know really overwhelming uh, initially <clears throat> you know trying to do retouching on a screen and then you know you get your, your print exactly the way you want it and you click print and you know the results were were terrible sometimes uh you know and and so that kind of got me to the this whole, what is this whole color management uh you know world and you know it was still pretty early days um so i remember ordering a uh, monitor calibration puck and you know waiting for that to arrive and then uh getting that all set up and my prints still weren't weren't looking good and couldn't figure out why that was a thing. So anyway, uh, you know, finally got into that and started getting, uh, you know, getting a hand on what, you know, digital color workflow really meant uh, and all the various parts of that. And I started uh, doing uh, uh, fine art printmaking 
you know, and so we were, you know, really pushing the boundaries of print play. The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A nice word for it. <laughs> I remember the first time someone came over and they're like, <laughs> I, um, I can, I want to show you the, this digital print I just made, uh, you know, and they, they were so excited and they pulled it out and they put it down in front of me and they're like, can you believe this is digital? And I looked at it and it was this black and white. It had this ugly green cast. And I was like, yeah, I, I can believe that's digital. It's terrible. You know? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, eventually, uh, you know, the quality really improved, um, you know, and the, the prints that we were getting were really, uh, really excellent. So anyway, that was that was kind of my world for a while was, you know, working with artists, uh, doing retouching. And, um, uh, you know, and it was, you know, a small business and, and I had a young family. And, and so uh, eventually I took a job at uh, SpectraFlow as a consultant. And, <clears throat> you know, at the time we were doing... You know, it was, it was a pretty fun time, actually, in retrospect, because we were, you know, in the course of a couple of weeks, we were working for uh, newspapers back when there were newspapers. Uh, you know, uh, we had Pixar as a client, some movie studios, uh, you know, independent photographers. We were working with, uh, we started working with some apparel customers. So, you know, each week was like, uh, you know, really all exposure to all these different um, color workflows, you know. And, and so that was kind of a was kind of eye-opening too in the sense that you know all these guys were using color um you know they're reliant on it um but the, the terminology the requirements the specifications the standards were all different all over the place um so that was that was kind of a <clears throat> was kind of fun times and then and from that, there was I got that a, mostly yeah. selling uh, printers julia uh, yeah, I mean, we sold printers, but, you know, the, the majority of the work was really doing, uh, you know, the integration. Uh, so it was really the whole, uh, you know, color workflow. Like, uh, our biggest client at the time was Abercrombie, and they had, I think there was over 100 uh, large format inkjet printers at one time running there. And we, you know, the challenge that they had was, you know, they wanted all their CAD design files to be color accurate when they printed uh when they printed them out and oh by the way all the hundred printers needed to be uh, identical so that they could send a design to any printer and, and it would be the same across all the different departments so you know that really got got us thinking about um you know first off it kind of exposed all the silos that we were dealing with within an organization you know that the marketing department and the cad department you know the, they were almost two separate organizations. You know, they didn't have any overlap, even though a lot of what they were doing was the same, you know, e-commerce is the same thing. Um, so yeah, it was, um, you know, it was interesting trying to, to bring order and uh, communication to, uh, you know, across those organizations. But yeah. And then, you know, I got into uh, kind of, recalled some of the software development that I had done, you know, just as kind of uh, for fun and started kind of hacking out some solutions for uh, some of the clients that we were working with. Really, I mean, they were just kind of tools as a consultant, uh, you know, that was the original idea. And then, of course, that turned into, uh, you know, an actual uh, product down the road. So, so that's kind of how I ended up. Uh, so that here. was the, yeah. that was the genesis of uh, Color Insight? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was not much more than a spreadsheet initially uh, for just doing. Uh, actually, I think it was the 
the initial client was, uh, I think it was like Sacramento Bee, uh, you know, a newspaper. Uh, and they were looking for, yeah. you know, a quick way to calculate uh, corrections for their spot colors. Um, and of course, you know, there were a lot of software tools out there, but, you know, we wanted something that we could kind of tweak and, and use. And uh, yeah, then then uh, we showed it. I, I think, it was, I don't even know how it came up, but uh, we showed the tool, which was, you know, getting more like a spreadsheet, uh, to someone at Old Navy. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we could use this to, you know, um, adjust the color on all of our CAD prints, which we want to be, you know, accurate to the, the physical standards. And that kind of took uh, color insight into kind of the direction that, uh, that it is. So when you when you say CAD department, are, what are they doing actually? Are they printing a print for a print fabric and and uh, making the repeats and strike off? What is that exactly? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's a good it's a good question because it you know everyone uses uh, or or you know used to rely on CADs even more. Um, you know, it spanned the gamut from, uh, no pun intended, uh, from, uh, you know, clients that would actually print out, you know, a, a, a CAD of a, of a design, a shirt or something, and they would fill it with, you know, a couple different colorways, and they would present that to their buyers, who would then, you know, make color selection uh, based upon that presentation. Um, and then sometimes the, those CADs would actually find their way out to the factory to serve as a as a reference to um, for the for the printers as well too. Right. Right. Um, so the importance of you know the color accuracy of those really really mattered. Uh, the the print almost became kind of a, a quasi standard in a sense. Um, but yeah, just being able to, to trust the print, you know, and then we'd have people who would, they would do, they would spend a lot of time doing the color correction on those cads and then they'd put them out on the wall for design review. And, you know, in a lot of cases, the color still wasn't good enough. So then they would take a little swatch and they would, you know, pin it to the cad. And, you know, so there was all these layers upon layers of work that were being created to try and, and, you know, compensate for you know the color not being accurate on uh, on the prints or the screens, right? Because I mean, at some point, it's right. like, what, what color is this thing that we're making? Right, right. And so then you you uh, started to work for DSL. Yeah, yeah. So about four years ago, um, <clears throat> I joined DSL, and you know, I, I was I was doing a little kind of kind of soul searching, trying to figure out you know what what the direction for uh, the color insight product was, and you know more and more I saw it as you know it being more useful if it could kind of help span the communication gap between uh, you know design and production uh, between different departments within an organization. Um, and you know, the, the software product that that's kind of at the, the crossroads of all those different requirements and concerns is our, our PLM systems. Um, and so DSL, we're a, we're a PLM company kind of first and foremost. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a, it was kind of a, a, a great fit. And, you know, over the last few years, we've really worked to, um, 
to make color uh, kind of a foundational component of the, the PLM uh, product offer. So, you know, in a lot of PLM systems, um, you know, color really isn't much more than just a, a field, you know, in a record right. somewhere that says, you know, it's got a color name and maybe there's some RGB values, but, you know, no color space attached to it. So it, it almost gives you an opportunity to do more harm than good. Um, and so what we've really done is to uh, link up, you know, full color description and, you know, have that information carried when you're communicating, you know, actually throughout the whole design production approval process, um, throughout the whole supply chain. So, so that's, that's the, um, that's, let's, you know, uh, take it up most of my time most days. Yeah, I'm sure. So how, how has like color management software, um, how has it uh, pro- progressed over the last four years or so? Like how, what are, what's changing in it? What's making it better? In, in our software or just kind of in, in industry in general, you think? Both, yeah. Hmm. Well, so, you know, initially Color Insight was, you know, it was really kind of a desktop application. Um, and so, you know, thinking kind of globally uh, has been a, a, a challenge in some ways. You know, um, you kind of, if you design software in a, in a vacuum, um, you know, it, it, it's a little simpler as opposed to thinking about the, the actual requirements. You know, one of, one of the things that's been most challenging is not the functionality. It's adapting the functionality for the end user. Um, you know, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of good tools out there that have, you know, all the bells and whistles and can do, you know, very elaborate, um, you know, analysis of color information. But, you know, realistically, it's, it's too difficult for a lot of people to use. So, you know, one thing that, that PLM can allow you to do is, is you, have, you have within the system a lot of um, metadata, a lot of information that you can then use to um, <clears throat> kind of set the system up so that the end user really isn't going in and having to choose, you know, all of the options to perform a task. Like they're just exposed to kind of the, the end requirement, which is, you know, can you please measure a batch, submit that information back to us, and then, you know, we'll handle all of the connecting it to the development request and, you know, link it up to the fabric record and all of that information. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that in general that's been – that's been something that, you know, the industry really needs to focus on is, you know, we've had the fundamental technology for a long time. You know, what we really need to do is make it uh, uh, more, a little bit more friendly, you know, without compromising, yeah. without compromising it either. Uh, and that's, right. that's a challenge. And then there's other things too, like, you know, what if you're working with someone who doesn't have good internet connection or they go offline from time to time? So you have to think about that. So, you know, you might have to have, a, and this is what we ended up doing, a hybrid solution where you have, you know, web components, but you also have desktop components so you can interface with the spectrophotometers. And so, you know, it's, it's really kind of required us, um, you know, not, not, there's not been a lot of new development in terms of like, you know, algorithms and things like that. It's mostly focused on how can we deliver a better experience, you know, for the end user, um, you know, just as a quick example, like, you know, if you go into Photoshop and you want to make a print, you know, there's, I think, literally about a dozen things that you need to check, uh, you know, the paper setting, you know, rendering intent, uh, black point compensation, you know, 
there's this whole list of things. And, you know, even someone who does it every day, you, you skip one or you miss one and, you know, you, you get different output between two different prints, you know, uh, and that's why the, the RIP software, you know, that's why, uh, that's the advantage that, that something like that provides is it takes away all those decisions from the end user. They could just submit a file and you get consistent results. So I think that, you know, that's been, um, something that the industry kind of needs to move more towards and certainly been something that, that we've been trying to focus on. Yeah. That's no, interesting. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm starting to hear a lot of the same kind of ideas uh, come through these interviews. And um, Keith Hoover said uh, the other day that um, he's like, these are not new ideas, guys. <laughs> you know, basically like this has been around. And um, he's like, he's yeah. like, I'm shocked that not more people are, doing it or getting it or doing it right and of course there are a lot lot of people that are um which which i think brings me to my next question is is that there's a lot of small and medium-sized companies we were talking about a little bit before we started um that really don't understand color color management all that well and what you know that there's some digital pieces that would help all right you're not going to throw it you know the whole um the whole PLM system out of it at once, but what, what can help small and medium sized companies start getting more efficient, start using digital in, you know, in tandem with the physical and um, start working a color flow a little bit more uh, effectively and hope, hopefully yeah. accurately. It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think, in some ways, some of the challenges, <laughs> some of the challenges faced by the small companies are, are not that different than, than some of the big ones that have yet to really, yeah, you scale. know, yeah, implement digitally across their whole workflow. Um, you know, my feeling is is that, and, and you know, Keith and I talk about this one a lot too. But um, you know, it's kind of frustrating to see the industry kind of stuck at, you know. 80% on a lot of these things, you know, when, when you, you could have this, this start to finish digital workflow that would really yield a lot of, of interesting benefits. But I also feel like there's an advantage to um, just starting somewhere, you know, to just getting a, a foot in the door, you know, and you can, you can pick a part of the process and focus on that. You know, it, it could be uh, getting your monitors calibrated and getting your uh, design tools, you know, set up so that, colors consistent across, uh, you know, 2D, 3D packages, right? You know, that yields a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, it, more and more, I think people are moving away from uh, printing out, wor- you know, work for review, but uh, it, it's still a pretty effective means of communicating color. Um, so, you know, maybe it makes sense to invest in that too, um, as, you know, even, even if you kind of consider it a, a stopgap or kind of a temporary method. Um, you know, uh, some investment in spectrophotometers is, is usually a good call. Um, you know, the, the benchtop devices are, are going to be the right call for, you know, serious color specification and measurement. But, you know, we've done a lot with um, even like the I1s, the, you know, handheld device you can get for a thousand bucks. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of it too, you can break down into, do I need to communicate um, the specification of this color or am I trying to approve, you know, consistency, right? Like there's an accuracy versus consistency issue too. And if we're trying to do, you know, 
uh, did you know this the standard that I approved in one location, you know, and I want to ensure that uh, my factory or someone else is you know producing the same color. You know, if we're both using the same devices, and even if they're you know cheaper ones, um, you know that's an option too. You know, even some of these little uh, handheld deals from uh, Data Color, you know, in terms of uh, measuring consistency, you know, they're they're, they're great. Uh, you can do a lot with those. So I, I think the, the, I wonder about those, and and the same thing with you know other companies, um, you know, colorimeters or spectrocolorimeters. Yeah. You're matching to a particular um, standard, whether it's a paint color or a Pantone color or whatever, and you could you could have two colors that are really pretty far apart that say they match the same color. You, you could. Know? So I wonder if those are really good for. Um, for that kind of thing. Well, you know, there's a big asterisk next to that, right? You know, like they, they <laughs> work a well with disaster. <laughs> well, they, they, you know, if, if I have a, 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 if I have a fabric sample in front of me and I measure that with, I mean, you know, whatever, any, any device, as long as it's repeatable, right? If I'm, uh, if I'm doing QC on the same fabric, Right. You know, then those devices, uh, as long as they're traceable to one another, you know, as long as they're repeatable, then they should tell me, you know, is that is that sample that's produced? Is it pretty close to the, the, the fabric that I prove? But, you know, one of the things that and this is one of my pet peeves is I don't know how many times I see a standard and it's on, uh, you know, it's a dyed cotton and they're using it to approve, uh, you know, a, a nylon or a poly or or home goods, a plastic. You know, you have paper standards that are being used for for home goods. You know, and the the sheen and the texture are all different. And you know, you, you can't. I mean, you kind you can discount that, but not when doing. You know, uh, if not not if you're trying to trace it back to you know. A, visual color approval and especially for those things that's usually pretty important yeah so you know it's it's one of those right tools for the job kind of things and you know i think this is also too why it's so hard for smaller and medium-sized businesses to to know where to start because like you have to unpack all these requirements and um i think in a lot of cases it's just it's just overwhelming like they don't know where to where to start um but, you know, again, I, I think if you, you know, especially working with, you know, uh, some sort of consultant that can kind of help you figure out, you know, uh, what, what the, you know, how to maximize the benefits, you know, minimize the investment, and then pick a place to start, you know, as well as kind of having that holistic view, too, of, you know, here's the workflow that we want to create at the end of the day. But, okay, let's, let's get this part in place first. Um, I think that's that's the ideal way to work. You know, yeah. You can. Yeah. Well, Andrew Frazier, uh, who was here um, a month or so ago, um, said that he would um, he would start with a color management software, um, which I think is it really makes sense because you could read you know what the vendors uh, QTX files and spectral data from them um, and and make comparisons to a standard um, without doing the readings yourself. You know, yeah. so, um, but it's interesting, and I, I was going to ask you about the handhelds. Um, I think that, I think more and more people will start using them for um, regular use. You know, yeah. they, they are pretty accurate, and they're, you know, a, a whole lot less expensive. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, just the advantage too, being able to pick it up and move it throughout, uh, you know, different locations, actually bring it out onto the, the factory floor, um, you know, and, and some of the spherical handhelds too are a real interesting compromise as well too, because, you know, they're, they're very accurate. They're not, you know, they're not as cheap as an I-1, but I think they're a nice middle ground too. And, and uh, yeah, the flexibility to, you know, take measurements offline too, and then bring them back in and, and uh, plug them into desktop is nice so yeah you know <laughs> yeah you would have to i mean i think you'd have to use a sphere i'm not a spectro uh, yeah. expert but um i think you'd have to comp- because that's what data you're comparing it to so the what i hear about plms and you could fit it into a thimble but um i always notice how many you know how long those implementations take and is, has that changed over the years? Uh, because I, I, I always see these people using, you know, working on it for long, long periods of time. And are you doing anything to, to, to help that? Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, building or implementing PLM, it's like saying, you know, how long does it take to build a house? Um, you know, it depends on if you're building a, a garden shed or, or, a, you know, a mansion. Uh, you know, the reason the PLM can take so long is, in a lot of cases, I don't think it's actually the implementation of the software. Um, you know, that that's usually a pretty trivial part. It's mapping all of the business processes that yeah. a company has um, into the software. And a lot of times, you know, there there's this kind of... Um, you know, you're, you're kind of reflecting the process back to them. And that's usually the time when they go, huh, okay. You know, <laughs> Why? Are, are, yeah, are we doing this the right way? Do we want to actually stick to that? And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation around that process. And then, you know, that's, that's typically one of the reasons that, that PLM is kind of seen as this, uh, you know, very involved process because it certainly can, yeah. um, you know, again, in, in kind of talking about compart- not compartmentalizing, but, taking a, a PLM or a color implementation into its, its constituent components, you know, you can also just pick an area and like, okay, we're going to, we're going to focus on just like the color implementation, um, you know, and that can go pretty quickly. Um, you know, you were mentioning starting with the software, um, you know, one of the kind of uh, design uh, paradigms, you know, that, that we have is, we're, we're not actually trying, like the Color Insight software is not really designed to replace yeah, anything. Um, you know, we, we see it as kind of the, the single source of truth, uh, you know, kind of a system of record for color specification. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of the idea behind PLM, too, is that it's it's the central system to manage all these, these other uh, parts. But, you know, even with the focus just on color, you know, um, once you have that digital library, um, once you, you know, have organized, digitized your standards, you know, then you have the opportunity to start building up metadata about them. Um, so that can be, you know, third-party information about the achievability of the color or uh, color by substrate. You can have your, your dye formulations in there. But, you know, you can also have other information, too. You know, you can have, um, you know, uh, know, sales data, uh, sell-through rates. You can have, you know, challenges of achievability by, you know, different regions. You can have production information. You know, we can do this with these dye stuffs, but, you know, we have trouble doing this with pigment prints, but sublimation's okay. You know, 
And now um, you can expose that information to uh, like designers, for example, right? You know, and so you're giving them feedback so that they can make more intelligent design decisions, um, you know, upstream as well, too, rather than dealing with production problems because the, the specification of the color was all wrong for the for the given substrate. Um, you know, being able to preview how is this print going to execute, um, you know, you know, uh, in a couple different using a couple different print techniques, you know, and just seeing, okay, there, there might be a problem with this. Maybe we should select something different. Um, and so, you know, the idea is, is that all that information kind of feeds back into your central system. Um, you know, you can start tying in other areas. You can link it up to your design tools so that, you know, uh, your palettes are communicated effectively. You know, you can start tying it in um, to, you know, e-commerce, uh, if you're doing a catalog, you know, so that, all that color information is is now connected. Uh, that you know, the the design, the production, the approval. You know, it's all in one system, and and uh, and you know, the decision making process, the insights. Uh, you know, it's all going to the same place. Uh, so you're you're breaking down those silos that kind of tend to pop up. Um, you know, in, in a lot of organizations. Yeah, I would think that. I think that achievability on, on different substrates is getting better. I hear yeah. so many people talking about it. Um, you know, maybe it's just one of those code words that just gets thrown around, but I know a lot of companies that are working on it. And it's not that hard, you know, you have a, you know, it could be done, you know? So, um, so when you're talking about uh, POMs, it makes me wonder about, the small and medium-sized companies, are they able to get into the POM game and have it work for them without spending, you know, huge amounts of money, which yeah. I'm, I'm sure won't be done uh, after, you know, the next few months. So um, how does it benefit a small or medium-sized company? Yeah, I mean, we actually, um, actually before the, the pandemic hit, um, <clears throat> one of the pushes um, last year was to really uh, push forward with a, a, a product that was targeted towards SMBs. Um, you know, and again, the, the main focus was to try and kind of present, um, you know, to make that deployment process easier um, by you know, providing kind of a framework so that there are certain assumptions built into the system. You know, we're kind of giving them a, a configuration that was set up for best practices and so that the deployment would be a lot easier. Um, and the, the color product was also kind of went hand in glove with that as well, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, PLM doesn't really have to cost a lot. Um, you know, it's also kind of a factor of how much you want to do with it, you know, how many users you want to onboard. But yeah, we've worked with, um, you know, a few companies that, have, you know, you consider smaller, I guess. Um, and one of the big benefits for them, too, is, is being able to, uh, you know, connect their production concerns uh, a little tighter, too. Um, you know, for comp especially companies that own their own uh, factories or means of production or they have kind of a tight relationship with them, um, being able to implement uh, color approval. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we've done, too, is we've also expanded. So it, it, our color approval system actually also has a uh, kind of a print optimization in it as well, too. So uh, as, a, as an example, we, <coughs> we've worked on some projects with sublimation. And 
the this optimization tool we used to use it for uh, the CAD team so that they could they could have their their CAD colors printed out more accurately, and we found that it was a great fit for people doing uh, digital printing where they could actually uh, you know in, in pretty much near real time make a sublimation print measure the fabric, compare it against the standard, and then develop a correction to their spot color tables. Um, you know, and, and we had people that were taking, you know, their, their factories were taking, uh, you know, weeks uh, to, to approve, you know, a seasonal palette of colors that were sent from the brand. And then, you know, we put the optimization thing in place. And, you know, it sounds like hyperbole, but they were knocking it out in, you know, a day, um, you know, just by giving them that feedback loop so that, it wasn't just, okay, here's the specification, match it. Okay, yeah, you sent me this color. No, it's, it's, it's a fail. Uh, you know, it gave them the, the opportunity to kind of iterate um, on their, their color matching so that the, the, the production people could actually see the results. And so that and when they sent something back for approval, you know, it was already pre-vetted. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's something else, too, that I, I think, you know, the industry could kind of use is, is there's a little bit of this kind of uh, uh, kind of carrot and stick mentality and it's a little bit more stick um, you know in the relationship between some of the brands and the vendors you know here's the tolerance that you have to hit you know approved or rejected but I think that you know helping them to improve the process you know giving them the tools so that really the only things they're sending you are you know uh, approvals um, you know, is, is something that we kind of need to, to move towards as well, too. Yeah. And you're talking about sublimation printing on fabric, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's, um, you know, during this pandemic, you know, everybody's working from home and we're trying to find new ways and new, new ways to communicate and, and whatnot. Do you, what, do you see any, um, do you see anything good coming out of this where we're learning, <laughs> we're learning any efficiencies about, you know, Hey, you know what, we did this during the pandemic and it's uh, it's a best practice now. You know, mm. I, I mean, it, it's not good, but the last time we had the financial crisis, you know, a lot, a lot less people went back to the places they, they started from um, yeah. because they got by with a lot, a lot less people. Um, do you see any of that happening now or do you, what do you see? Yeah, it's a, it's a real tough one. Um, honestly, um, c- color management at a individual level is a is a real challenge. Um, you know, I think it's worth noting too that th- this color stuff is really hard. Like, <laughs> col- color is really. It's really complicated. Like, Wait, we just talked about how easy it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, well, we're, we're trying to come up with doing it. <laughs> well, we're trying to come up with all these tools to make it a little simpler. But you know, fundamentally, it's really yeah. challenging, right? Because you have you know all these different components. You have you know you're trying to model what's happening you know in here you know because it, ultimately it's a it's a you know psychophysical phenomenon that's what color is you know so we have to have the the physics of light which is not an easy thing to explain you have all the the material challenges yeah, yeah. you know you take psychology into it uh you know which is which is like a, a huge part of it 
you know, it, it's not like measuring something where it's like, you know, you can hand someone a ruler. It's like, yeah, how long is that? They're like two inches. Cool. Um, you know, with color, you're like, well, here's the lab value. Okay. Well, what aluminum is it relative to? Oh, D65. Okay, great. Oh, what about my observer content? You know, and, and by that point, you, you've already lost, you know, uh, 99% <laughs> of your audience. Um, you know, trying to calibrate monitors. Yeah. You can send someone a puck and they can calibrate the monitor and we have tools for that. But, you know, the biggest challenge and one we don't talk about is, you know, the, the environment that they're, they're viewing the screen in, right? Like you have this nice Apple monitor and now they, they change, you know, uh, brightness to compensate for, um, you know, the surround area, which is nice if you're a designer, yeah. but for in terms of color it's accuracy, it can, yeah, it can be a challenge, you know? So, it's, it's really difficult. It makes some things really, really difficult. You know, um, you're probably not going to send everyone home with light, a light booth. Um, you know, what we can do is you'd be be surprised how many people are taking one now and sending home. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's part of it. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if we can rely more on the numbers, you know, that, that is, that is probably, you know, one of the things that, that's going to come out of, of remote work um, is maybe we'll put a little bit more attention into, um, okay, you know, everyone's design software, you know, it's going to be, the, the color settings have to be centrally managed, you know, so that when I, we exchange files, uh, you know, we're all in the same color space. That, that becomes, you know, uh, more important. You know, we're all pulling from the same, palette source, right? Rather than having, you know, sharing palettes and you know, emailing them back and forth. Like we really need a central source to, to pull from. So we're using the same RGB values or spot color yeah. definitions. Um, you know, when we specify an approved color, you know, we're going to have to look at the, we're going to have to look at the numbers. We're going to have to look at what the devices say. You know, if it says that there's a delta E of 0.8 and that's your tolerance, you know, um, you do, you're going to have to rely on that rather than say, send me the sample. Um, so, you know, that, that may be what happens, but I'm, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical too, <laughs> just because, you know, people, <laughs> people are the weakest link in all this too. It's like, you know, uh, you can have all these tools, but if you don't use them effectively, you know, it, it, the whole thing breaks down. And a big part of that is, is training and education. Um, and I think that's something that probably needs you know, a little bit more investment too. you know, probably needs to start in, in the schools too, you know, like in the design colleges, like there should be, you know, a whole course on, you know, practical color science, uh, not like the yeah. color theory where it's like, you know, don't, don't mix, you know, orange and green or something like that, but more like, you know, here's how your environment affects things. You know, here's how the you know, here's why you need to use a light booth. And then when people are coming out of college, like they already have those best practices instilled in them. And it's not, you know, uh, it's not an uphill battle to, to try and kind of um, educate that once they're in the industry. Yeah. Tough though. I mean, there's less and less textile there, schools. Yeah. My, my school, Philadelphia Textile, is now Jefferson University. So that'll give you an indication um, of how much emphasis they're putting it on now. Um, yeah. Do you think that there's things that the color standard providers can do uh, better or um, to make color a little easier to match or is there anything that you think they could do better? Well, (laughs) 
So uh, one thing that, that I, you know, this is just my opinion, but um, with a standards provider, you know, the, the standard, you know, the whole point of having a standard is that it, it should be accessible, right? Like, you know, if, if I have a color standard, that spectral curve really should be that that's your standard, not the physical, right? Because that's right. The physical is a, is an example of the execution on a substrate to that curve. Um, right. So that, that digital component is, is really key. And if you can't effectively utilize that digital standard, um, then you're kind of defeating the whole point of it. And, you know, some providers are better than others in making it uh, relatively easy to acquire those digital standards. Um, but, you know, to me, that that's, that's a big part of it. You know, if, if you're specifying, yeah. you know, color X, you know, it should be unambiguous what the digital definition of that, that color is. Um, you know, if you have to jump through a bunch of hoops, then, then people find the easiest path, you know, then they find, uh, you know, I mean, I remember going on site once and we pulled out, uh, there's, there's standards and, um, you know, the designers had manually corrected, uh, one of their kind of whites, I think it was, you know, some, some, some sort of white color. Um, but it, but it kept printing out tan and we couldn't really figure out what was going on with that. And then we pulled the standard and the standard that they were using as a visual reference was literally 10 years old and it had been handled so much. And originally it was optically brightened. And so this white became very much an off white for years of, you know, oils and the sun bleaching all the OBAs out, you know, but but that, that piece of 10 year old piece of fabric was, you know, important in its visual reference, you know, whereas if you kind of, you say, no, look, this, this curve on the screen, that's, that's our color. Um, I mean, that's certainly a more effective way to do it, but you know, then you also have to contend with people saying that that doesn't, you know, I want something in my hands I can touch and feel. And there's that whole tactile kind of emotional component to it. So it's, it's tough, you know, it's tough, but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you're saying, okay, we have a digital workflow and digital color standards, like, uh, you know, everyone needs to be able to work from that, that same unambiguous definition of what the color is. Yeah. And I think the, uh, I, I think the standards providers have, um, have heard that for so many years. They're, they're getting, they're, they're definitely advancing on it. I, I yeah. see some advances. So um, yeah. hopefully that, that'll, that'll happen. Do you think that um, there'll be the same type of emphasis on color, color quality, um, after the pandemic, if there is an after, I don't know. Um, you know, will will people still care so much about it, or will the environment be so changed that um, everything will look different? That, that, that's it's an interesting question. I mean, my thinking is is that um, it, it we we can't we can't afford to let you know the level of qualities slip, um, you know, first off, cause it's a slippery slope, right? Once you start getting away from those tight tolerance, I mean, if someone approves at a 0.8, by the time it makes it on the shelf, it's never really a 0.8, you know? So if you're a little bit more lenient upstream, 
by the time you get downstream, it's going to be all over the place. Um, you know, I, I remember sitting in on a, on a talk, um, I think it was someone at Levi's and they were talking about like there were dockers and the, the khakis, you know, and how, you know, in that particular color family too, right? Like very subtle uh, shifts are really very, noticeable, especially when you start stacking yeah, product up on the shelves. So I don't know. I, I think that, I think that we need to, we need to hold, we need to hold fast on, you know, the quality uh, standards that we've, you know, kind of built the industry to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it might be a little bit of a challenge. We, we have to, we run out figure out other ways to maintain that across, uh, you know, a more of a remote working environment. Um, and I, I think, I think some things are going to go, not go, go back to normal, but I mean, I think, you know, rather than having maybe a color team in the middle of a whole design department, maybe the color team is, um, you know, more centralized in one location and, and, you know, our design teams and off in a different location. I don't know. Maybe we see the work, work looking a little bit more like that, but you know, I mean these, you know, we, we have, we have these people, these job functions for a reason. Um, one thing though, you know, just anecdotally, uh, I sound like a Luddite, but I, I bought my first uh, online purchase uh, during the <laughs> pandemic of, of clothing uh, and immediately returned it because the, the color was, yeah, first one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bought I bought things on Amazon, but right. not clothing. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm old school. I like to I like to go look at it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the the, the color was wrong. The, the fit was terrible, and you know, uh, finally, I, I finally got one that worked. But yeah, I mean, that's a big thing too, right? Is is the focus on uh, you know e-commerce <laughs> and those little little color chips at the bottom of the product image. Um, you know, I think that's an area too that, that could use a lot of uh, improvement. And some companies are doing a really good job of it, and others are um, doing a terrible job. I actually encountered, and I won't name the, the company, um, but online the the color square representation of a product was um, you could tell that someone had used like Microsoft Paint and just filled it in like as like like the default like magenta color because you know the, it was like some neon magenta like you could you could see it was like filled in with paint you know that was like their online representation of of that product color um so you know that's another thing too that where you could use you know plm or, or some sort of color lifecycle management to say okay we're going to actually pull the e-commerce you know uh color from uh you know or, or we're going to derive it from the standard and so rather than having a photographer recolor, you know, based upon the garment sitting next to them, you know, you can automatically apply color to, you know, well now more and more it's a 3D rendering too, right? So, you know, I think things like that, I think we can probably see more of an investment in, you know, kind of streamlining the online representation of color, uh, digital color representation uh, as well. And, you know, what, I don't know how, what the percentage is probably like 80% of online purchases are done over the phone too. So, um, you know, like a Apple's actually done a pretty good job of investing in, uh, you know, the screen calibration and, you know, the iPhone, uh, screen accuracy is pretty, pretty decent. Um, you know, compared to where we were, you know, 10 years ago in kind of the wild west of, uh, you know, flip phones and Android phones. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's had a big impact and, you know, it's kind of done behind the scenes, which is nice too. Yeah. So it surprised me or at least up until a few years ago, how 
little uh, data was being collected about returns and um, specifically color returns, which is what I was really interested in. Yeah. You know, like somebody sends something back to LLB, you know, maybe up and name. Um, But, um, you know, they they would send it back with a sheet of paper and they could either check one of those boxes or not, you know. So that's not really captured. So, I think it's it's just kind of approximated how much money is really wasted. Uh, so much money now on returns and and you know shipping things back and da 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 da. da. Um, so I think that is important. And will continue to be. So those are the questions I have. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I could talk about color for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say the same thing. Um, <laughs> tell, tell us, tell us something that um, everybody would be surprised to know about you. Uh, about me, I don't know. Um, Besides that, you were a psychology major. <laughs> there's a there's a python in my kitchen. Um, there, there's a what? A python? Yeah. yeah. Ah, she's yeah. Okay. I have a right. yeah. I have a, I have a pet snake. Her name's Audrey. Um, All right. Yeah. I don't know. I guess. We have kind of a, a weird collection of animals, I guess. Um, <clears throat> before that, I had a... We'll had keep a, the small ones away from the python. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my, my son informed me the other day that he uh, he wants a, a meerkat now. He watched a nature documentary oh, and sure. he decided that that's our next our next pet. So we're trying to... Sure. We're trying to counter offer with maybe a cat or something like that. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Every kid should have a meerkat. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, they're pretty the way cool. it is. Yeah. I mean, if, <laughs> if it didn't violate some price and health, I'd right. uh, try to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Julian, thank you so much. It was really interesting and, and great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time so much. Um, let, me, let me just check and see if there was any questions on uh, Facebook. I don't see any, but um, if um, if some turn up, I'll 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 send them to you so you can answer okay. them. Sounds good. All right. So everybody, if there's people out there, um, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, next week we have um, an interesting guest. Also, his name is Bruce Wright from X Wright, and he's going to talk about uh, TAC, which is Total Appearance Capture. Um, which is really interesting. Uh, people looking at uh, 3D imagery and being able to um, not just look at a color accurate, accurately, but what is the appearance um, of that fabric, of that substrate on that, uh, on that image uh, with, with real realistic imagery. So um, that'll be interesting. And um, thanks again for your time. It's Columbia Omni Studio. And um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Julian. Pleasure.